Hello, um, my name is Kieran Pike, and I'm uh, the president of the um, uh, Pacific Sociological Association. Um, and I'm, um, and this is the presidential address. So thank you all for coming. <laughs> Um, I do want to take a moment before I launch into the address to uh, recognize the many attendees who are here who have traveled very far to get here. Um, the, the, it has been an incredible year. So many people um, have gotten involved uh, in this conference. And what I'd like to do is begin by recognizing those who have crossed an ocean to be here. If you have crossed an ocean to be here, will you please stand? I know. Yeah. So, so, there aren't that many of you. I want, just keep standing. We're not done. We're not done. There's Marina Karides, who's from the University of Hawaii in Hilo, and she actually is presenting on island feminism. And so, and she is, by the way, you know, the Hawaii is part of the Pacific Sociological Association. Uh, we could have meetings there. <laughs> and could you introduce yourself? Oh, oh, great. So we have two people lobbying for a meeting in, in Hawaii, their new committee over here. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we have Andrea Easter Pilcher, uh, a wildlife conservation biologist from St. George's University in Grenada. And I'm a visiting professor at SGU this year, and she's our new incoming uh, dean at the School of Arts and Sciences. And how long of a flight, you guys, to get here? 20 hours. 20 hours. I mean, 20, I, I flew it too. It was like 20 hours. And Oliver Benoit, who presented yesterday, Oliver is a sociologist at SGU. He's also an artist of uh, international renown. And so I am so grateful that you guys have made this journey. And thank you. Also, I'd like for those who travel from outside the Pacific region, and you may not know if you have or not, so you need to know what the Pacific region is for the Pacific Sociological Association. So if you came from one of these states or provinces in Canada, Mexico or the United States, if you did not, I mean, will you please stand? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And um, I do want to point out that one of the people who stood was um, EEO, EEOC Commissioner uh, Kai Felbloom, who's going to be presenting tomorrow at the plenary. She's an Obama appointee uh, to the EEOC. So I hope you will all be there tomorrow at the, for the plenary, which will take place, um, I believe, in the same room. Um, OK, well, welcome, all of you. And those of us who come from the Pacific region as well, any first-time attendees to the PSA, why don't you stand so we can welcome you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. 
Yes, okay, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd also like to introduce my family. Um, my mother, Betty Zacharias, is here with her husband, Bernie Dickey. My stepson, um, Oliver Childers, is here. And he presented today. Uh, yeah. And uh, on the construction of realness around gender and race and Drake culture. And this is part of his senior thesis at Evergreen uh, State University. So it's like, it's kind of all in the family because my husband, Joseph Childers, um, uh, behind Oliver, also presented uh, today. Uh, he's um, left the University of California, uh, Riverside, this past uh, summer for a new job as provost at St. George's University in Grenada. And he presented this morning on um, uh, how to negotiate or deal with administrators and how to be an effective administrator. <laughs> for yeah, so thank you. Um, but I appreciate, and I'm, I, I want to welcome you all uh, to the PSA, and thank you for joining us. Um, I love this organization. I've been involved in the PSA for nearly three decades, and I've made a lot of friends here. Uh, the PSA has, for the most part, felt like a safe, comfortable place for me, uh, and I hope it will feel like that for you. A sense of safety and inclusivity is something we all should have the privilege of feeling in our departments, our classrooms, on our campuses, and in our professional associations. But unfortunately, too many of us do not feel safe at all locations within our profession, nor do we feel confident that our campus administrators will have our backs should we experience discrimination, bullying, retaliation, sexual harassment, and even sexual assault. This is why I chose as the theme for this conference, institutional betrayal, inequity, discrimination, bullying, and retaliation. I'm grateful that so many of you have embraced this theme as reflected in the number of sessions um, on which you're participating and have organized. Many of us came to this profession because we wanted to make a difference, to have a positive impact on society, and sociology seemed a way to do that. And like many of us, my pathway to this profession began as an undergraduate. I was a bit of a, a late bloomer in college. It took me about three years to decide on a major. I remember coming home from the University of Michigan and on winter break and announcing to my mom that I'd finally found my path. I had decided to be a women's studies major. My mom's response, what does that mean? <laughs> you don't like men? Now, to be fair to my mom, who's sitting right there, <laughs> I should tell you that my appearance had changed since the last time she saw me. For now, I sported a very short haircut. I had uh, stopped wearing makeup. I no longer shaved. And I was dressed in a flannel shirt, man's vest, jeans, and a really cool pair of kick-ass hiking boots. You know the kind I'm talking about the kind that are made for walking right over anyone who gets in the way. <laughs> I was wearing the uniform of a 1980s lesbian. Yes, I was a women's studies major. <laughs> and unbeknownst to my mom at the time, she was largely responsible for my choosing a women's studies, women's <laughs> studies as well. For when I was growing up, she emphasized to me the importance of going to college, having a career, and if I should be heterosexual, avoiding financial dependency on a man. 
This is particularly important in my family. For many of the women in my extended family uh, had been victims of spousal abuse. And having a career represented a path out. Next, I told my brother, the conservative business major. Very much like Alex P. Keaton from the 1980s sitcom <laughs> Family Ties. In fact, I think they based this character on my brother. When I told him I was majoring in women's studies, his response was, what kind of a job are you going to get with that? You better not ever come and ask me to borrow money. Now, I wasn't really thinking about money. I was thinking about safety. Safety from domestic violence by having a career, but also safety from an unfair and hostile work environment. What better way to do both, I thought, than to become a professional feminist? At the University of Michigan, I felt valued and respected in my women's studies program, where a consensus model of conducting business meant everyone, including undergraduate majors, had a voice in meetings. This seemed like the kind of safe, inclusive, respectful work environment I was looking for. So it's not surprising I eventually aspired to a career in academia, what I believed at the time to be a bastion of left-leaning politics and a workplace that values diversity and equity. My graduate years at the University of California, Irvine, further underscored this view, where I again felt valued and respected by the faculty and encouraged in my pursuit of feminist theory and qualitative methods, interests I shared with my mentor, Francesca Kansian. It was later, after earning my PhD, that I came to learn, slowly, gradually, and very painfully, that academia does not provide a safe work environment for many of those who are racial, sexual, and gender minorities. My awakening occurred when I attended a series of meetings with a group of mostly senior white men faculty. It was in these meetings that I found myself unable to speak clearly. My words were undecipherable. For when I spoke, I was met with a wall of blank stares from the men around the conference table. There were no nods of understanding or agreement, and the conversation quickly turned away from what I had said, as if I hadn't spoken at all. After several such meetings, I became quite concerned and shared with my spouse that something was terribly wrong with me. I had lost my ability to effectively communicate my thoughts. And I knew the problem was with me, because there were several occasions when a senior white man colleague would later in the meeting make the same point I had tried to make and get a response from the other men I had failed to get. I became very concerned. How was, how was I going to publish if I couldn't communicate clearly? How are students going to understand my lectures? How was I going to get tenure? I began to worry over every sentence I wrote. Was it clear? Would readers understand? Could I even write something that could, could get published if I couldn't even speak coherently to colleagues? I became reluctant to accept invitations to give talks and presentations. Now, this long, painful time of paralyzing self-doubt went on for at least a year. And then it happened, my aha moment, the one you've all already had. <laughs> Took me a while. It came at a meeting with the same group when a woman assistant professor offered a suggestion, speaking clearly and articulately. At least I understood her. And when I looked around the conference table, I saw the same wall of blank stares accompanied by silence. One man and then another moved the, the, the discussion in a new direction, 
without acknowledging what the woman faculty member had just said. It was as if she hadn't spoken at all. And then I heard it, the very same point that she had made coming out of the mouth of one of the men at the meeting. In response, there were nods of understanding and agreement, and that was my aha moment, which this cartoon captures. I don't know if you all can read it, but the man at the head of the table is saying, <laughs> is saying to the one woman there, that's an excellent suggestion, Ms. Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. Now, if I had seen this cartoon years earlier, it might not have taken me so long to figure out what was going on. Now, I wish I could say that once I recognized these passive-aggressive rituals of disrespect, that my self-doubt dissipated, that I got my mojo back and went on my merry way, speaking and writing with greater self-confidence. But that would be a fairy tale. Now, unfortunately, becoming aware that you're facing microaggression and disrespect in your workplace is not confidence-boosting. And as it turns out, this is only one of many aha moments I was to have over the years. Unfortunately, my experience is familiar to many sociology faculty and graduate students who are racial, sexual, and gender minorities. One only has to visit one of academia's many hush harbors to hear similar accounts of marginalization, microaggression, bullying, and the like. What I mean by hush harbors are those academic sanctuaries that minority members of the academy create where they can feel safe and supported and can openly share their experiences working and studying in academic settings that may be diverse but are not inclusive and often are downright hostile to their presence, their perspectives, and their research. In the hush harbors, one can hear faculty and graduate students describe the, neg the negative effects of working in an unfriendly or openly hostile environment, such as sweaty palms, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, insomnia, depression, anxiety, anger, guilt, low self-confidence, and on and on. Clearly, such environments are not healthy for individuals, for departments, for our students, or for the production of knowledge. In many ways, hush harbors are like domestic violence shelters, providing a safe environment for those facing workplace abuse. Hush harbors can be informal spaces, like a house rented by African-American women scholars attending a professional meeting who feel a need for a separate, safe space to which they can retreat, talk freely, and rejuvenate or formal spaces like Sociologists for Women in Society, an association created in 1971 in response to the marginalization of women in feminist research and sociology. SWS started the journal Gender and Society in 1987 due to hurdles in getting feminist scholarship published in mainstream outlets. And despite the fact that Gender and Society is now among the highest rated of sociology journals, feminist scholarship remains at the edges of the discipline the largest section of, of the American Sociological Association is the sex and gender section. It is also the most gender imbalanced of the ASA sections. 84% of section members in 2015 were women. Similarly, the race, class, and gender section focused on intersectionality and outgrowth of feminist theory is 76% women and is the third most gender imbalanced section of the ASA. 
Another ASA section with immense gender imbalance is the theory section, with only 32% women. Given that feminist theory guides the research associated with the largest section of the ASA, the underrepresentation of women, of women in the theory section underscores the continued sidelining of feminist scholars and feminist theory in sociology. In other words, it's not only women who are marginalized, but also the kind of research and theory that a great many women sociologists undertake, including that which can help sociologists to be more adept leaders on our campuses around issues of inequity and discrimination. The existence of hush harbors points to a fundamental failure of academic institutions to live up to claims that they embrace diversity. Diversity is supposed to mean inclusion, integration, and equity. Not marginalization, segregation, denigration, and discrimination. Yet for many of us in the Shadow Academy, that is what the word diversity has come to represent. We have seen too many leaders of universities and colleges fail to respond appropriately and timely to sexual violence and sexual harassment on their campuses, looking the other way, and in so doing, protecting harassers and rapists. Just look at the case of Penn State, for example. And if, and if administrators are failing to address these most glaring of wrongs, you know they are not addressing the more mundane, everyday forms of bullying, retaliation, and discrimination. This is why some of us cringe when we hear our campus leaders engage diversity rhetoric alongside their indifference to the structural and cultural hurdles to fairness and equity in their institutions. A few years ago, a sociologist I'm going to um, excuse me, I'm going to refer to as Petrina, shared her story of institutional betrayal in a session at the meetings of sociologists for women in society. Petrina worked for a university that, like most, prides itself on its commitment to diversity. Yet, as she described, diversity was a catchphrase with little relevance to actual operating processes that she observed. After her department failed to reach a consensus regarding a faculty hire in a search involving several women of color and one white man, the dean asked the department to vote again to try to reach a consensus. Given that the highest vote getter was the white man, the dean wanted to see a strong majority emerge in a revote. This practice of revoting to create the illusion of consensus around contested hiring decisions is a somewhat common practice particularly when you have members of underrepresented minorities in the pool. However, in this case, the re-vote did not secure a consensus. In response, the dean punished the department by putting a moratorium on their ability to hire over the next year. A few months later, the department received the personnel file of a senior white man being considered for a half-time position in another department with the request that they consider this applicant for a half-time appointment in sociology. This request was in violation of the dean's moratorium on hiring in the department. And Petrina viewed this exception in the case of a white man applicant to be discriminatory. And she made this point in an email to her department colleagues, adding, this is a classic example of how racial and gender discrimination occurs in hiring. And as sociologists, we ought to reflect on dynamics of inequality as a matter of principle. 
A member of the sociology department forwarded Petrina's email to the dean with the request that he punish her for discriminating against white men. The dean abided this request and wrote in an email to Petrina that her sentiment implies an explicit racial gender preference when it comes to hiring and is not consistent with our principles of community. Petrina wrote a lengthy response to the dean explaining to him in the most basic of sociological terms <laughs> how this exception to his moratorium was in fact discriminatory. Despite this exchange, the dean allowed the department to go forward in voting on this sole applicant while still maintaining the year-long moratorium on all other hiring. A few months later, the Campus Office of Affirmative Action and Equal Opportunity contacted Petrina for an interview about a discrimination complaint they had received. Oh good, Petrina thought, someone reported the discrimination in her department hiring process, prompting the investigation. And then she got a copy of the complaint. It was not the dean or the department that was being investigated, it was Petrina. She was being investigated for, quote, I'm glad you're all sitting down, Reverse discrimination against white men. A member of her sociology department had filed a whistleblower complaint alleging reverse discrimination on the basis of Petrina's email that suggested the departmental hiring process was discriminatory. This, by the way, folks, is precisely what retaliation for alleging discrimination looks like. And in honoring this allegation with an investigation, the university aided and abetted retaliation. Now, I know what you're all thinking, so I want to make it perfectly clear. No, this was not Trump University. <laughs> this institutional betrayal occurred at a highly regarded public research university whose leaders proudly engage diversity rhetoric. Upon the advice of an attorney, Petrina wrote a letter to university administrators at all levels reporting this act of retaliation and asking them to investigate and stop this unlawful behavior. Nonetheless, the university proceeded with its investigation, which apparently was quite a challenge as it took them a full year before they, could, they concluded that Petrina was not guilty of reverse discrimination against white men. And what about Petrina's request for an investigation into retaliation or her original allegation of discrimination? The university never investigated either of those claims. Bringing charges against those who report wrongdoings is an institutional betrayal and one that effectively discourages others who would be whistleblowers. This is precisely what transpired when nutrition professor Amy Blackjoy, who I have to say I see sitting right here and she's also presenting tomorrow, um, when she reported that a staff member had embezzled federal research dollars from one of her grants, a crime for which the staff person was later found guilty and sentenced to prison. Amy's neighbor at the time happened to be Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower, who while working at the Rand Corporation, released the Pentagon Papers in 1971 bringing to light the U.S. government's secret bombings in Laos and Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Ellsberg warned Amy that, as a whistleblower, she would face retaliation. And he was right. Similarly, 
when Michelle Coyle, who is sitting right over here and is presenting tomorrow, uh, was University General Counsel doing her job as a compliance officer by alerting administra administrators to widespread gender discrimination on campus, including their own, she was fired. Two months ago, Michelle won a $2.5 million judgment against her former university for retaliation. And both Amy and Michelle will be speaking tomorrow on the panel, Winning Legal Challenges to Institutional Betrayal. Amy, Michelle, and Petrina's experiences might seem like outliers, but actually they aren't. And I've heard lots of accounts of retaliation at crazy things that I would not have imagined even happen, but they do. Um, and institutions of higher learning resist change and social justice by punishing those who speak up against wrongdoings. Now, a far more common and widespread example of institutional betrayal is the tendency to lay blame for entrenched gender inequity at the feet of women faculty themselves. As feminist sociologist Sharon Bird notes, explanations for gender disparities in the advancement of faculty tend to be women-centered, focused on what is wrong with women's behavior, women's choices, women's personalities, and even women's biology. Indeed, blaming women has become institutionalized in academia. Take, for example, workshops on the topic of faculty gender inequity. What kind of workshops does your campus offer? Do you get workshops that train administrators and faculty on how to recognize and change structural barriers to gender equity? Or do you get workshops that implicitly blame women's behavior by putting the responsibility on women to change, such as these workshops that I found offered at various institutions? One workshop for women faculty in STEM fields was on effective communication and included the topic of Reducing vulnerability to gender bias. <laughs> Putting responsibility on women faculty to avoid gender bias is akin to training women and girls to avoid rape while expecting no change in the behavior from men and boys. It's as if gender bias and rape are inevitable features of society and all we can do, all we can hope to do, is minimize our vulnerability. But we can't possibly expect to eliminate gender bias or rape. This approach, of course, leads to blaming the victim who experiences gender bias. It becomes her fault for failing to take the proper protective measures, such as attending this workshop. <laughs> At one university, the recipients of a grant designed to increase the participation and advancement of women in STEM careers organized a retreat for women faculty at a resort and spa, with room and board provided for two nights. The topic of the retreat, the joyful professor, discussing how we can find ways to negotiate our complex academic and personal lives in a po positive, joyful way. Because as we all know, the problem of ine inequity for women faculty is that we are not joyful and positive enough. <laughs> and here is another workshop that takes the blaming woman approach. Negotiation skills for women academics. Women tend to ask for less than their, than their male counterparts, and the consequences of this difference can add up to be a serious disadvantage over the course of a female academic's career. 
not just in salary, but in many other areas. There are benefits to be gained by negotiating and risks in failing to negotiate. So gender pay inequity is because women don't negotiate. In this interactive workshop, attendees will learn strategies used by the most successful negotiators. And of course, the most successful negotiators just happen to be men. So the problem with women is that we are not men. <laughs> One can almost hear Professor Henry Higgins saying to his good friend Colonel Hugh Pickering in the classic My Fair Lady, why can't a woman take after a man? Men are so pleasant, so easy to please. Whenever you're with them, you're always at ease. If only a woman could be more like a man, then there would be no gender inequity. <laughs> the message is that only when proper, properly assimilated will women succeed like men. If institutions of higher learning truly value diversity, instead of spending so much time trying to assimilate minority faculty to the behavior and needs associated with white heterosexual men with stay-at-home wives, for whom, let's remember, the professorial career was originally designed, we would instead adjust academic structures and practices to be inclusive of the diversity of personalities, values, perspectives, life course trajectories, research theories, and research methods of white women, women and men of color, and LGBT and Q faculty. The presumption that women need remedial help to behave in ways to achieve equality with men not only fails to address the problem, it contributes to it. And it often leads women faculty to blame themselves and one another for their slowed advancement and lower wages. Nowhere is this more evident than in the just say no approach to service labor. We know that women's slower advancement through the faculty ranks is due, at least in part, to their devoting more time, on average, to service duties than their male counterparts. We also know that women faculty are over-recruited to perform service labor, and women of color are especially targeted for service as they add both gender and racial diversity to the committees on which they serve. For decades, the primary institutional response to this problem has been to advise women faculty to just say no to service. While serving on the, on the Academic Senate's Committee on Committees at my university, I had another one of my aha moments. This committee is charged with filling the vacant seats on all Senate committees and task force. I observed and participated in the incredible pressure uh, on uh, the, the committee's incredible pressure on women faculty to serve so as to ensure diversity. Women faculty at this university comprise only one-third of all Senate faculty and only one out of four full professors, which is the typical ratio of women to men faculty at research-oriented universities. Because we had such a small pool of tenured women faculty to draw on for service, and we did try to focus on those with tenure, after a woman said no to uh, a request to serve, it was common practice for us to go back and ask her again, pleading that we needed a woman to ensure diversity. Meanwhile, white men faculty were not in short supply, so they were less likely to be asked in the first place. And if they were asked and said no, they only had to say no once. 
And here's my aha moment. For while we were pressuring women faculty to change their no into a yes, there were on college campuses across the United States anti-rape, take back the night marches with women shouting the slogan, my no means no. And yet, here we were treating women faculty who said no as if it meant convince me. I don't know if you can see the hen saying to the rooster, no means no, so stop trying to egg me on. <laughs> During this time, I also participated in personnel reviews of faculty, and I saw how service labor was discounted in those reviews, with some faculty even being blamed for doing too much service. Because white women and women and men uh, of color faculty are saddled with more service labor, Blame for doing too much falls disproportionately on their shoulders. Meanwhile, the university placed sole responsibility on minority faculty for managing their over-recruitment for service. A university personnel website provided this advice at the time. Maintaining a reasonable level of service activity without overburdening burdening oneself requires careful choices and sensible time management. So if you're overwhelmed with service obligations, it's your fault. You overburdened yourself. You weren't sensible and careful in your choices. And of course, this is a rather naive perspective of power relations within the academy. Meanwhile, the university had no mechanism and has no mechanism for monitoring the recruitment practices of senior colleagues and administrators or for sanctioning service pushers who over-recruit gender and racial minority faculty. Service pushers, like drug pushers, often misrepresent the negative effects of that which they push by overestimating the rewards and underestimating the costs. And while drug pushers are criminalized as evil wrongdoers in our society, academic service pushers are neither demonized nor blamed. Indeed, they are among the highest status members of the academy. And think about it. Often what they're doing is transferring the service burden from themselves onto others. In fact, the university reg regards the over-recruitment of race and gender minority faculty as normative. Here is more advice from that faculty personnel website. Women and members of a minority group may find requests for their services numerous and time-consuming, and they must be prudent in assessing their valuable input in relation to other demands on their time. Now, am I the only one who finds it odd to structure an occupation on the premise that employees will be asked or told to do more service labor than they ought to perform and for which they may be punished with a career stall and lost wages? And let's be clear. If you are a woman or a man from an underrepresented racial minority group and you say no to service, that service work still has to get done. And often that service burden gets transferred to another minority faculty member. This came home to me when I was asked to serve as the chair of the Diversity and Equal Opportunity Committee. I said no. A while later, I was asked again because, well, you know, when a woman says no, what that really means is convince me. I said no again. Who do they get to serve on the chair, as the chair of that committee? An assistant professor woman of color. I asked her how she came to serve in this role, and she explained that the first time they asked her, she said no. 
But then they asked her again. The just say no response to the problem of service overload is yet another example of how women are blamed for the problem of faculty gender inequity. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that the practice of blaming women faculty is nothing short of institutionalized misogyny in higher education. And this is not an easy assertion to make, but quite frankly, I don't know how else to understand the longstanding entrenched commitment to failed policies and practices that are based on the woman as deficient model. Given the centrality of the study of inequality to sociology and the numbers of sociologists who study various aspects of inequality, we ought to be the discipline turned to the most for campus leadership on these issues. Sociologists should be taking the lead in cleaning up our work environment. I say this because what separates sociologists from faculty and other disciplines is that we are actually obligated by our professional code of ethics to take an active role against bias and discrimination when we see it in our workplace. According to the American Sociological Association's Code of Ethics, sociologists strive to eliminate bias in their professional activities, and they do not tolerate any forms of discrimination. I compared our professional code of ethics with those of other social science disciplines. Ours is the only one that obligates us to take action when we witness discrimination and bias. Political science, anthropology, psychology, and even women's studies associations stress in their codes of ethics that professional members of their discipline should not engage in discrimination. But none of these professional associations go as far as the ASA's code in asserting that it is also unethical to tolerate forms of discrimination and bias. What that means is that for professional sociologists, silence is not an ethical option. But here I would say, if you have tenure, because if you don't have tenure, as many of us have discussed and heard people discuss today, it's very dangerous because of, of retaliation. We are ethically obligated to speak up against victim-blaming approaches to inequity on our campuses because to do otherwise is to tolerate discrimination and bias. It is our obligation as professional sociologists to hold our administrators accountable to inclusive policies and processes, to administrative justice instead of administrative betrayal, to conducting in a timely manner external, independent investigations into claims of discrimination, retaliation, and harassment, and to creating workplaces that are psychologically safe environments in which we all can do our best work. And in order to do that, it is incumbent upon us as sociologists to stay abreast of research and teachings on dynamics of inequality. And that requires moving feminist, critical race, and queer scholarship into mainstream sociology. Let those who, due to willed ignorance and uh, fail to keep up to date with such knowledge, be the ones to occupy the edges of the mainstream. But I also want to be very clear here. None of us are immune. A PhD in sociology, being a feminist critical race scholar, None of that inoculates us from participating in dynamics of oppression and bias. We all must be self-reflective about our own unearned privileges and investments in structures of inequality. 
Let me tell you about another one of my aha moments. When organizing one of the panels for this conference, I consulted with another sociologist uh, uh, about who to put on the panel, and she suggested someone, and I invited them for the panel, and they accepted. I later lamented to her the lack of diversity on the panel, adding that I wish there was someone who is LBGT or Q. To which she replied, oh, but there is. <laughs> and in so doing, she laid bare the heteronormative cisgender bias of my assumption. We are all implicated in the matrix of oppression. Patricia Hill Collins wrote nearly a quarter of a century ago, once we realize that there are few pure victims or oppressors, and that each one of us derives varying amounts of penalty and privilege from the multiple systems of oppression that frame our lives, then we will be in a position to see the need for new ways of thought and action. Many of us were drawn to sociology because we wanted to make a difference. And many of us do research on aspects of social inequality, often contributing knowledge and our own activism to social justice movements in the wider world. We need to lead by example. It's time we cleaned up our own house. It's time to bring the revolution home. Thank you. Before we move to discussion, I just, I, I want to mention, um, I want to take a moment. Um, I want to take a moment to remember somebody who's very near and very dear to this organization, and that's Amy Dennison. Uh, we lost Amy Dennison last May 1st. Um, Amy um, uh, lost her six-year battle um, with cancer. Um, and she served, of those six years that she was battling cancer, the last three years she served as secretary of the PSA. And that's how I knew Amy, um, through this association. I didn't know Amy very well, but I knew her um, in, in her role as secretary. And you did not need to know Amy well to know that she was someone special. She was a sociologist at Cal State Northridge, uh, an activist for social justice, and um, some of her research uh, included the study of discrimination among women in male-dominated building trades. Amy was also a lifelong dancer, a swing dancer. She loved to dance. Shortly before she passed away, my colleague at University of California, Riverside, Ellen Reese, visited Amy. And they talked about the PSA that was coming up. And last year was the first year that, at least that I recall, that we had um, a DJ and dance, and Ellen shared this information with Amy, and she was very happy that there was going to be dance at the PSA. Well, we're doing it again this year. We have a band that's come up from Northern California. They're an awesome band, Island of Black and White. They have won Sacramento Music Awards. Um, they get everyone dancing every time I've seen them perform, and so I really beg them to come up here and to get you all dancing. And if, even if you don't like to dance and you won't dance, I, your, your feet will still be a tapping when you listen to this band. <laughs> but I hope you will come out and let's dance tonight in memory of Amy. Thank you.
questions, comments, discussion, anything? We have a few minutes. We have, there's going to be a reception in the next room. Uh, I think they might be ready in about 10 minutes for us. So there's going to be good food and cash bar. Thank you. You know, I cannot tell you how many people have gotten on board. We, we've lost a few people because of storms on the East Coast, but there, people, I mean, this has become more than just a regional meeting because there are a lot of people coming from all over, and it's the theme uh, that so many people got involved in. So it's, it's you know, everyone who put together. Uh, people even contacted me. Um, asking to participate, non-sociologists, uh, it's been amazing. So uh, I think there's a pent-up need for us to have this discussion. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Right. What do we do with this? Well, one of the things is, is that we shouldn't punish people for doing the service. We should reward them. Because think about it. Administrators, what do administrators do? Administrators do service. But what do they get when they do it? They get higher pay. They get course release. They get, they get you know, different kinds of support so that they can juggle. That's what needs to happen, I think. A variety of things can happen. You know, it doesn't have to be one, one solution, but but, uh, and it depends on the institution, right? I saw Val, Val Jemis. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Karen. I thought that was just fabulous. So I really want to thank you for being so thoughtful and you know, personalizing these issues and making them data-driven and telling the story and doing research and being by the public institutions. So really, I just want to say thank you personally. Thank you. Well, I've heard from people here at this conference um, some powerful stories of this. And, and part of it is people who are in departments and programs um, where there are those who, will, who are allies. For example, white men who will take the lead um, in, uh, who are senior white men, who will take the lead in making the arguments uh, for women of color and, and their department who they know are more vulnerable. Um, so this, is, this goes back to bringing to the center of sociology the research and teachings on inequality. I think we need to, we need to um, so that we can train people on how to, better on how to be allies and, and 
um, make it a, you know, reinforce the ASA code of ethics um, that we are obligated to a certain extent to do this. And one of the things that we can do is have ongoing training workshops at our conferences, which quite frankly, we don't. We kind of assume that we're knowers and not learners, you know, but, but we're, we're right and, and that we get it, um, but we don't all of us, and there, we all have blind spots. So I think ongoing education about what we can do, um, and, and knowledge is constantly changing uh, about inequality. It wasn't that long ago I did not know what cisgender meant. Okay, so we need to keep up. And that means, uh, and then if we do, and that becomes kind of our norm, then we become the center of sociology um, and I also think we need to reach out to our, um, our other disciplines and ask them to also adopt uh, a similar code of ethics to ASA so that we're working not just in sociology departments, um, uh, but you know, across the board with faculty on, on uh, not tolerating um, discrimination, retaliation, bullying, and so on. So those are just some ideas I have. I also want to point out that on Sunday between 10 to 12, uh, there is an open forum for people to bring ideas uh, from their conversations, from their sessions. Um, so, and we're going to talk about what we need to do to move forward. Um, and there's going to be other sessions, too, that are touching on these topics. And we heard from people today who were talking about sexual assault on campus, uh, who are faculty members who have done that. And sadly, they also shared stories of immense retaliation. Um, so, but but the, the other issue is I've heard a lot of stories about retaliation and bullying. And one of the things that these stories had, have in common is I'm, I'm listening to them, I'm like, where are the colleagues who are you know, coming around this person? And so that, that's what we need more of, is um, uh, more commitment um, to come together and rally behind that person who's being bullied, who's being retaliated against, or, or whatever. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we kind of uh, you know, wonder, you yourself as a minority man or you know, whatever intersection, 
I've heard this a lot, and one of the problems, of course, is that there's a lot of vetting that happens uh, before, very often in many places, uh, before minority faculty are elevated to um, positions of power, and that's part of the vetting, that, the result of the vetting, uh, getting somebody in who will not rock the boat, right? And then they're indebted. I mean, I, the, the classic example I give is the Clarence Thomas example, right? That uh, you're here because you're here to serve uh, this, the existing system, right? So, so, I mean, and that's been a big disappointment to, I think, many of us when we've seen that happen, when we really had faith and hope and uh, the minority faculty member. Um, and that also means that we need to really judge people by the content of their character and not, you know, I mean, it's ironic there have been times when I've said some, you know, there have been some situations when it seemed like the best woman for the job was a man who would fight for. Um, and, and so this is about people coming together as allies and we should be able to recognize uh, who our allies are and who they are not, regardless of their race, uh, gender, and so on. And, and I also want to point out that, you know, one of the things, I've heard some examples here too, it's not just minority faculty who can be bullied, for example. Um, white straight men who uh, may appear weak or, or whatever can, can be bullied, and they may not even have the legal recourse of being in a protected, protect, legal protected, legally protected category. Um, and yet, it, part of it does relate to gender and the display of gender that um, they're engaging. So, um, you know, I don't want to suggest that it's only um, minority faculty who are dealing with these issues. And likewise with service, too. Um, Absolutely. Right. So I actually am saying, how about this one, and then this subcommittee, and then that looks like you're doing this, and then you do this over here, and we've got you covered at this level and this level, and then maybe something here. But it's because I've had this experience myself of doing those sorts of things, but I often really clue in as to how much time it's going to take away from what this person is here to do it. No. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said about how we, how we do our jobs as chairs, and it's not particularly about what they get to and what they receive and so forth, but thinking about the various applications that we work on. 
Yeah, there absolutely needs to be training programs. Training, you know, you got your PhD because you do research, you teach. It doesn't mean you're, you're, you know anything about administration. Um, so there, there needs to be dean schools, chair schools, and so on. And probably, yeah, maybe the ASA, but also institutions should be responsible for that too because there's so much variation among institutions that um, it's hard to offer a generic kind of uh, program. But uh, that's definitely something that is needed. Yeah. Well, I mean, this goes back to, quite frankly, the marginalization of minority faculty. Because if, 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 if what we're saying is at the, at the margins and not in the mainstream, we're not being heard. So, you know, it all goes back around to we have to um, pull it into the center. And I know we've been trying for decades, but um, one of the things that's happening, I was talking um, to my husband about this on, on his presentation this, this morning about uh, the new corporate model of the university and um, kind of becoming aware of what that means, what that entails. And he was saying that, um, that one of the positive things, if I dare say that, of this corporate model is that they are lawyering up. But what that means is they're giving attention to risk management. And what that means is, is that there might be a place for us to point out the risk. And one of the things that I have suggested is that maybe what needs to happen is more kind of seeking legal support outside of, you know, going through the grievance processes, which, you know, some people do, and then they're all just dead ends. But then, and then they often stop or change their jobs or retire or whatever. Maybe we need to not stop. Maybe what we need to do is consult with attorneys. Uh, tomorrow at 5, 5.15, uh, that, that time slot, there's going to be an attorney, Michael uh, De Niro, who's going to be presenting, giving advice on how to exhaust administrative uh, grievance processes um, before um, maybe seeking an, a, a legal course of action because one of the things that universities and colleges will often do is say, well, you haven't um, exhausted your administrative, your, your grievance processes. So he's going to give advice on this. He's a former University of California professor uh, who had his own grievances and then went to law school. And um, so he works in California. He works for, UC, does a lot with the UCs and Cal State. So I'd encourage you to talk to him um, about some of these, some of maybe personal issues, but even general strategies. I also, before becoming, a, going to graduate school, I was a, a newspaper reporter, and we had the ability to call a lawyer at any time to get advice um, about something, you know, to do with, with the story we were on or a process or, or something. 
We don't have that, and uh, faculty don't have that. I mean, Campus General Counsel do not serve faculty. They serve the institution, they protect the institution. It, you know, maybe one of the things that we need to do is to create a kind of um, a group of attorneys that we will, you know, as, through our profession, we have access to for advice, for feedback. Um, because I know a lot of people have a very difficult time uh, finding the right attorney to talk to. Um, so maybe that's one of the, the things that we need to do so that we have lawyers talking to lawyers about the risk of our, uh, that our universities are, uh, you know, taking on by not addressing these things. Okay, well, I invite you all to the reception in the next room.